Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Larry21. Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com. Take your podcast to the next level. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. We dive into stories of true crime, from unsolved cold cases to historic kidnapping to gangsters and beyond. We are your source for true crime. We thank you for listening. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host, Larry Lease. On today's episode, we're diving into the rise and fall of Gambino crime family boss, John Gotti. But of course, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Pondix, for sponsoring this episode. If you're looking to grow your audience and get more engagement with your podcast, check out Pondex today. Go to Pondex.com, use the promo code Larry21 for 10% off your order. And you can be a part of the show by sending us a voicemail at 682-305-0483. And now on to today's topic, Deflon Don John Gotti. The date was December 16th, 1985. Location, Sparks Steakhouse in Manhattan, New York. John Gotti and Salvatore the Bull Gravano were parked in a car at one block. It was a cold December day in New York City. Gambino family boss Paul Castellano was getting driven to a meeting at the restaurant. The driver of the car was Thomas Pilati, a capo in the family. Pilati parks the car in front of the restaurant at approximately 5.30 p.m. Castellano was sitting in the rear seat of the vehicle, and he began to get out of the passenger's side. A hit team approached the vehicle and started shooting at the boss. He was shot six times. Pilati heard the shots and went to get out of the car, and he was taken out from behind. 
Balani was stunned and shocked by the shots being fired at them, that he was not paying attention to his surroundings. A gunman approached from behind and takes him out. At the end, each man is shot six times, and they both lay dead on the streets of Manhattan. The two men kept this assassination plot a mystery from the other Gambino family members. Back at the car, Gravano puts the car in drive and proceeds to go to the scene of the hit. Gravano pulls the car next to Castel Castellano's vehicle to see the outcome of the hit. Gravano looks down at the body of Bellotti that was laying lifeless on the street and stated to Gotti he was gone. Gravano and Gotti drive away and head to Gravano's office in Brooklyn. This unsanctioned hit would propel John Gotti to the top of the Gambino family and cause his rapid descent from the rank of boss. John Gotti was born on October 27, 1940, in the Bronx, New York. John Gotti's household consisted of his mother, father, and 12 other siblings. Gotti dropped out of high school at the age of 16. He started hanging out in the mean streets of Queens and soon became involved with a street gang called the Fulton Rockaway Boys. And in this gang, he met Angelo Ruggiero, who would become one of his best friends for the rest of his life. Gotti became involved with the Mang Mangano Gambino family under Capo Carmine Fatico. During his time in the crew, he would meet future underboss Aniello Delacroix, who would become Gotti's mentor. And, and at an early age, Gotti would run errands for Aniello. During his tenure as a soldier in the family, Gotti made his money by hijacking trucks coming out of Idlewind Airport, which is now known as JFK Airport. Another notorious cargo jacker was future Bonanno boss Joseph Massino, who Gotti would become friends with. In 1968, Gotti and his good pal Angelo Ruggiero were convicted for hijacking cargo and sentenced to prison for three years. Gotti was paroled in 1972 and returned to the crew that was run out of Virgin Hunt Fish Club in Queens. Fatico took a liking to Gotti because he did not talk to the feds and did his time in prison. He decided to give Gotti more responsibilities for his loyalty. In the late 50s, Albert Anastasia was running the Mangano family. On the orders from the commission, he was taken out and soon after the underboss, Carlo Gambino, was named boss. After Carlo Gambino took over the family, it was re renamed to Gambino. Carmine Fatigo's crew was absorbed into the family. Carmine gave the job of enforcer to John Gotti, and he was responsible for collecting debts from illegal gambling owed to the crew. Soon after, Carmine was indicted and forbidden from interacting with the family. He chose John Gotti to run the crew. At the time, Gotti had not yet been inducted into the family because the books had been closed by Carlo Gambino. As the acting capo for Carmine's crew, Gotti often had to travel to Manhattan's Little Italy to meet with the underboss, Delacroix, at his social club, the Ravenite. Gambino boss Carlo Gambino had a nephew that was kidnapped and assassinated. Gambino wanted revenge, so the hit was assigned to Gotti. Gotti received the hit because Delacroix assigned it to him. Delacroix knew that if Gotti had successfully carried out the hit, he would be inducted into the family once the books were opened. The killer of Gambino's nephew was a hoodlum named James McBratney, who had no mafia affiliation. Then, May 22nd, 
1973, Staten Island. Gotti and his team walked into a Staten Island bar called Snoops. The three were posing as cops and approached McBratney and asked him to come with them. McBratney believed that the three men were gangsters because of the way they talked and walked. McBratney knew better and he suspected that they were going to kill him and he resisted. A struggle occurs between the four men at this point. The rest of the patrons in the bar are cheering on McBratney. Galeon got tired of the struggle, pulled out his pistol, and shot McBratney dead. Gotti laid low for a year after the hit. He was a wanted man along with the other two, because the hit occurred in front of many witnesses. The Gambino hired famed attorney Roy Cohn to represent Gotti and Ruggiero. Gotti copped a plea to attempted manslaughter and was sentenced to four years in prison. <clears throat> it is believed that the hit on McBratney earned him membership into the family. Books were closed, but membership was allowed for Gotti because he did the boss, Carlo Gambino, a favor. After completing two years in prison in July 1977, John Gotti was released. Gotti was promoted to the rank of capo and given the Virgin Hunt and Fish Club crew to run. He still answered to Delacroix. Gambino had passed away on October 15, 1976, and by this time, Paul Castellano had become boss of the family. Castellano, with the urging of the underboss, promoted Gotti. Paul Castellano carried on the time-honored tradition of death to those members of the family who sold narcotics. From the mid-70s to the mid-80s, Gotti's crew continued dealing in narcotics. Gambino families were not happy with the Paul Castellano leadership. He did not Castellano did not earn his bones through the traditional mafia ways. Castellano considered himself a businessman, and he, in fact, made millions of dollars from legitimate businesses. In the late 70s, Castellano demanded 15% kickbacks from everyone in the family, instead of the original, or traditional, I should say, 10%. In the early 80s, Gotti's crew had begun to get investigated from the feds for dealing narcotics. Angelo Ruggiero had been caught on wiretaps, speaking of drug deals. In 83, Angelo and Gene Gotti, John's brother, were arrested for dealing heroin. Paul Castellano demanded the Angelo Ruggiero tapes, and he refused to turn them over. Castellano threatened Gotti with a demotion if the tapes were not turned over. Paul Castellano was arrested in 1985, and Gotti had a chance to take over the family. Gotti, along with a few other conspirators, plotted the hit that would take Castellano out. On the eve of December 16, 1985, the hit was carried out successfully. Frank uh, de Ciso informed Gotti that a meeting was going to occur at Sparks Steakhouse that day. Gotti seized the opportunity. In January 15, 1986, John Gotti was named boss of the Gambino family. After having a family meeting with the other capos, Gotti named Frank DeCiso underboss. Gotti subsequently named his co-conspirator in on the Castellano hit, Sammy Gravano. Many of the other families were not happy with the hit, especially the Genovese and Lucis families. In the span of nine years, Gotti went from soldier to capo to boss of the Gambino crime family. One of the first orders that Gotti put out as boss was that no members of the family could take plea deals that acknowledged that Cosa Nostra existed. On April 13, 1986, a bomb was placed in a car by Gambino mobster James Fela. 
with the Genovese family wanted to put in place of the boss of the Gambino family. Lucie's underboss, Anthony Acasso, was nearby watching. Fela detonated the bomb after confusing a Lucie's soldier for John Gotti. Gambino underboss Frank DeCiso was killed in the explosion. Soon after, the Gambino family sent a hit team after Lucie's underboss, Anthony Acasso. The hit team failed, and subsequently they were caught by Casso and its NYPD crooked detectives. The hit team was killed. It is believed that Casso had Sammy Gravano and Angelo Ruggiero on his hit list. Eventually, Gotti, the Genovese, and Lucis family settled their differences. John Gotti went on to defeat the government three times in the mid to late 80s. The press dubbed him the Teflon Don because any indictment against Gotti would not stick. Gotti loved the limelight, and he often wore $3,000 suits, and for this, the press dubbed him the Dapper Don. Soon after Gotti became the boss of the family, he moved his headquarters to the Rabbinite Social Club in Little Italy. Gotti wanted the capos and the family to pay homage to him on a weekly basis. So every week, the Rabbinite would be full of wise guys. The feds needed to change their strategy to nab the Dapper Don. That they went back to doing what they do best, which is to gather information by conducting surveillance. With associates, maidmen, and capos paying homage to Gotti on a weekly basis, a map of the structure of the family was created. In 1988, the agents assigned to conduct surveillance on Gotti obtained a warrant to plant a bug in the Rabbinite Social Club in Manhattan's Little Italy. The only problem was that it was very noisy in there, very difficult to catch any conversations. After a few months, the electronic surveillance was shut down because they could not get any criminal information from the bugs. The agents continued the visual surveillance and noticed when Gotti had to talk business, he would walk around the neighborhood. The mobsters called them walk and talks because it was very difficult for surveillance teams to plant bugs. The agents also noticed that after a while, Gotti could no longer be heard on the tapes. It was as if he disappeared at certain times. The team discovered that Gotti would leave the Ravenite and go into an apartment two floors above the Ravenite to talk serious business. The FBI observed that an old lady would leave at the same time on a weekly basis and return a few hours later. When the old lady appeared, Gotti could not be heard on the tapes inside the Ravenite anymore. The name of the lady was Nettie Sorelli, the widow of an old Gambino soldier. The team of agents met with an informant who stated that the lady lived alone. Then, on November 19, 1989, the surveillance team observed Sorelli leaving the apartment with the suitcase. They assumed she was going somewhere for the Thanksgiving holiday. The FBI seized the opportunity and entered her apartment. It was small, and there was only one place to sit. It had a lamp nearby, so the teams of agents planted a bug in the lamp. The team of agents started picking up incriminating conversations that Gotti would have. In one of those tapes, he talks about whacking his underboss, Sammy the Bull Gravano. This would be instrumental in helping take Gotti down. December 2nd, 1990, the Ravenite Social Club. Manhattan's Little Italy team of federal agents and NYPD detectives raided the social club and arrested Gotti. Underbras Gravano and Los Socio. 
the Sorelli tapes were, were played at a pretrial hearing where all the defendants were denied bail. Sammy Gravano heard what John Gotti had said about him on the tapes, and he was infuriated. Gravano decided to turn state's evidence against Gotti because he believed that Gotti was going to try to pin everything on him. On November 13, 1991, Gravano and the Justice Department finalized the agreement. Then, February 12, 1992, the trial against Gotti began. The jury remained anonymous and was sequestered for the entire trial. This time, there would be no bribing any jurors. The recordings made in the apartment proved to be damning evidence against Gotti. To add insult to injury, Gravano then testified against his former boss. Gravano identified Gotti as the boss and went on to confirm the information that was on the tapes. The government presented a case that ran until March 24, 1992. Gotti's defense team then began to work. Unfortunately for Gotti, the witness on his behalf were expelled and his only witness was a tax attorney. Then on April 2, 1992, after 14 hours of deliberation, the jury convicted John Gotti. During John Gotti's trial, wiretaps were played that had Angelo Ruggiero telling a mob associate that boss Paul Castellano considered Gotti for a higher position than Capo. The Gambino soldiers said on those tapes that underboss Aniello Della Cruz informed boss Castellano that every family groomed someone to take over the family in case something happens to the leadership. In the end, Gotti's mouth and his love of the public life is what brought an end to his reign. On June 24th, 1992, Gotti was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. The Dapper Don, John Gotti, died in prison on June 10th, 2002 in a federal prison in Springfield, Missouri. The Catholic Diocese in Brooklyn, New York did not allow Gotti's family to have a mass for his soul before the funeral. Instead, they allowed for a memorial mass after the burial. Gotti's funeral was held at P Papa Vero Funeral Home in Queens, New York on June 15, 2002. The funeral procession proceeded through the streets of Queens, passing by Gotti's home, Virgin Hunt, and Fish Club in his final resting spot, the cemetery. Gotti was given the nickname the Dapper Dan by the media because of the way he dressed. The money that was used to buy the fancy suits was from ill-gotten gains. The media dubbed him the Teflon Don because in the 80s, he beat the government in court three times. But we now know that the juries were tainted. Once the feds got to him, the nicknames given to him no longer meant anything. He did have the support of his community, but in hindsight, the public and his community had no idea how evil and devious he really was. At the end, John Gotti's tenure as the Gambino crime family boss, arrogance, and his inability to foresee how the federal government would get him, is what brought an end to his reign. Let us know your thoughts on Teflon Don in the comment section below. Is there something we missed? Something we got wrong? Let us know. And as always, if you want to support the show, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNS. Your support helps the channel grow, upgrade our equipment, bring in new hosts, be able to pay them, pay our writers, and hopefully take the show on the road one day. And your support can help make that happen. As always, thank you so much for watching and listening. And we will see you next time.
You have been listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast and on Twitter at True Crime NS. Follow us on Instagram at True Crime Never Sleeps. Thanks for watching. If you want to support the show, buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNN or become a patron at patreon.com slash True Crime Never Sleeps. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.